Praise the Lord. This is Andrew Wallach, and this is our fourth tape in the series that we have entitled You've Already Got It. And in this series, we've already dealt from Ephesians chapter 1 with the fact that we've already been blessed with all spiritual blessings. And in the latter part of that chapter, we talked about how that we already have the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead living within us. And my point that I was drawing from that chapter is basically that God has already done these things. He's already deposited in us everything that we need. And this goes completely contrary to the philosophy of most Christians today. Most Christians believe that God can do miracles. He can move. He can do things. But they don't believe that he has already done it. So that's what we talked about on the first tape. The second tape was about grace and faith, and we took that from Ephesians chapter 2, and uh, we focused primarily on verse 8 and talked there about how that faith only appropriates what God has already provided by grace. That is a tremendous principle, and that entire tape was on that subject. If you've missed any of this, if it's been a while since you've listened to it, I encourage you to go back and refresh your mind because everything we'll be talking about today is dependent upon already understanding these things. But most people, again, Christians believe that faith is something we do to make God move. But faith doesn't move God. God moves by grace, independent of us, prior to our need. He's already provided all of our needs before we ever had a need and so God by grace has already provided everything and faith doesn't make God move God doesn't respond to our faith but our faith is our positive response to what God has already done it only appropriates what God has already provided by grace tremendous truth Then in the third tape, in an effort to explain this, I talked about the spiritual realm because some people just literally come up against a wall when you start talking about the things I've already uh, enumerated, the things I've already discussed. They, They come up against a wall and they say, but this doesn't make sense. It's not real because they can't see it. There are some people who literally cannot believe that anything exists beyond what they can see, taste, hear, smell, and feel. So the third tape was basically trying to establish that there is a spiritual world, that God is a spirit, John 4, 24. God moves in the spiritual world. God's activity is in the spiritual realm. The things that God has done by grace are already provided and a reality in the spiritual realm. But whether they ever manifest themselves into the physical realm does not depend upon whether God gave, but rather it depends on whether we receive. And there are things that we can do to uh, quicken the manifestation period of time in between when God gives and when we see it manifest. Uh, There's things that we can do to hinder it. And what I want to do on this tape is talk about spiritual warfare and about dealing with the devil and overcoming his hindrances to what God has already provided. This is possibly the most controversial thing out of everything I'll be teaching in this entire series because today there has been a big emphasis on spiritual warfare. Satan does exist. There is evil in this world. There are demonic forces that are fighting against God. And prior to the last maybe 10 years, 15, 20 years, the body of Christ as a whole has been very ignorant 
of Satan's devices. Many people believe that all of the devils were over in Africa in some third world undeveloped country, but they didn't believe that in any of the western countries, in any of the developed civilized countries, that there was such a thing as demonic activity. And over the last two decades, I think that has been shattered, especially among charismatics. There's probably still evangelicals and some of the mainline denominational churches that still are ignorant of Satan and his existence and believe that that stuff uh, doesn't really have much of an impact. But anybody who really believes the Word of God has to acknowledge that Satan is a real foe. Satan tempted Jesus. Satan fought against him his entire ministry. There are many instances where Jesus healed people and by casting demons out of them. Uh, there's many instances, like one of the clear instances in Scripture is Acts chapter 10, verse 38, where it says that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with power, who went about doing good, healing all that were oppressed of the devil. It makes it very, very clear that sickness was an oppression of the devil. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that, but Satan does exist. There are demonic powers, and I think that it was good that it has come to the forefront that that we are in a spiritual battle. But in the process, I think that uh, much of the body of Christ has gone to an extreme. I mean a very, very weird, far extreme in spiritual warfare, and in doing so has actually imparted to the devil powers and abilities that he doesn't really have. And so on this tape, uh, we are going to be dealing with that. Satan is a factor. He does hinder what God has already done in the spiritual realm from manifesting in the physical realm. And so we're going to deal with that and talk about taking our authority over the devil. But I want to make it very clear that uh Satan is basically a defeated foe, and the only reason that he's able to do anything is because of our own ignorance. Just like Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, that uh, he wasn't ignorant of, of Satan's devices. The body of Christ today has been ignorant. Now, they have come to the knowledge as a whole that Satan exists, but then they've imputed unto him powers and ability that he doesn't really have. Let me just start over here in Ephesians chapter 6. And the book of Ephesians is a book that we've used throughout this entire teaching. And again, I say that it was written from the standpoint of everything has already been done. And therefore, it's a matter of us just possessing what God has already given us, not trying to get God to give us something new. And the book of Ephesians is written from that standpoint. So in the sixth chapter, he's kind of winding down. This is the last chapter in his letter to the Ephesians, and in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, he says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. He goes on to say in verse 12, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So these two verses make it very clear that we are in a battle. People who don't believe that we are in a battle are, are destined to lose it. But let me make a clear line of distinction here, and this may offend a number of people, but I ask you to follow through with what I'm saying, listen to these scriptures, and then draw your conclusions from what the Word says, not just from current 
teaching in the body of Christ, current examples and things like this. We are in a battle, but the battle is not out there in the heavenly places. Now, we are fighting demonic powers, yes, and they exist in the heavenly places, spiritual wickedness, but the battle is right between your ears. Notice in verse 11, he says, Take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The word wiles here means lies, deception, cunningness, craftiness. All of these words are implying that Satan's only power is deception. Satan does not have actual power to be able to force anyone to do anything. Satan really is a non-factor. Now, I'm going to be establishing this in a lot of other scriptures, but let me just make some statements. Again, I challenge you to follow through and listen until I get to the scriptures that will verify these things. Don't just turn this off because it's contrary to uh, popular theology today. But Satan is an absolutely defeated foe. He has zero power to destroy anybody, to keep people in bondage. He has no power to do anything whatsoever. Satan's only power is deception, wiles, cunningness, craftiness, lies, deception of the devil. It says over in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul was talking to the Corinthians, and of course those of you that are familiar with the uh, context of this statement will recognize that the Corinthians had fallen into some terrible things. They were... Uh, doing all kinds of weird things. Paul rebuked them pretty soundly. But he said in verse 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Now notice here, he says that the way Satan is going to come against you is through subtlety, which once again is implying deceptive practices, deceit, wiles of the devil, It's consistent, and he says here that the way Satan comes against us is through the simplicity that's in the gospel. In other words, we're trying to make it harder than what it really is. You can trace this all the way back to the book of Genesis, and you can find in Genesis chapter 3 that it says that the serpent came against Eve, and the serpent was the most subtle animal on the face of the earth. Why didn't the devil take a, a mammoth? or an elephant, or a tiger, or a lion, or something to intimidate Eve? Why didn't he have a mammoth just stick his foot on top of Eve's head and say, why don't you eat of this fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or I'll crush your head? Well, see, Satan didn't do that, because he had no power to force or intimidate Adam and Eve into anything. Instead, he had to come and deceive them. The way he started the deception was by saying, Has God really said? And he challenged the word of God. In other words, the truth, the truth of God's word is the thing that allows us to yield to God, to follow through, to seek him, and to resist the devil. And if Satan didn't challenge the word and get them to second guess and to question the word, well, then that temptation would have gone nowhere. The serpent didn't come and force them, didn't intimidate them, but instead deceived them. And this is actually another subject. I've got uh, a tape set on this entitled uh, Christian Philosophy 
part one and part two. There's actually two three-tape albums that are basically all taken from Genesis chapter three. And it'll go into a lot more detail if you're interested in listening to that. But in that, you'll find out that he tempted Adam and Eve with something they already had. He says, don't you want to be like God? The truth was they were already like God. They were more like God before they ate of the fruit than they were after they ate of the fruit. That's a very good parallel to what I've been talking about. Satan is trying to say, oh, sure, God loves the world, but what makes you think he loves you? And he gets you into feelings and in trying in some physical way to discern whether or not God loves you. And so you get into the physical realm instead of understanding that in the spiritual realm it's a done deal. And because you don't feel love, because you don't have a goose bump, you get into unbelief and say, Oh God, please pour out your love in my life. And that's actually a prayer of unbelief. You know, Satan loves to keep people from coming to the Lord. But if he can't keep you from coming to the Lord, which he can't, I mean, stop and think about it. You were at your very worst. If you were ever going to be weak, if you were ever going to fail in anything, you should have failed in getting born again because you hadn't been going to church. You hadn't fasted. You hadn't prayed. You hadn't studied the words. You weren't living right. Many of you were whoremongers, adulterers, dope addicts, whatever, mean, selfish. And in that state, you called out and received the greatest miracle that you could ever receive. If Satan was who he claimed to be, then he would have kept you from getting saved instead of after you get saved saying you didn't get it, you didn't get it. He can't stop you from doing anything. Now, he would rather keep you away from God. But if he can't keep you from coming to God, then the next best thing is to make you say, oh, sure, God can do these things, but he hasn't done them yet. And Satan loves to do that. I liken it to like when you play tug-of-war, you know, where you have two different teams and you're pulling on a rope and like there's a mud puddle or something in between. And when if you ever did this as kids, I did this when I was a kid, and you always tried to pull the other team into the mud. But if you saw that they were winning and that you could not win, instead you were headed for the mud puddle, you know what you did? Well, most of you probably just second guess, you let go of the rope so that if they're going to win, at least they're going to fall on their can doing it. And so Satan is doing the same thing today. He's coming to Christians and is basically saying, if you were really a great Christian, how come you aren't doing this and doing that? And he will condemn you over what you don't have and try and keep you focused on just the physical realm. But the truth is, in the spiritual realm, you do have everything. And as it says in Philemon chapter 1 verse 6, it says the communication of your faith becomes effectual by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. The way you get your faith to work is when you start acknowledging the good things that are in you. Many Christians today are saying there isn't any good thing in me. You know, Paul said this over in Romans chapter 7. He says, I know that in me, And then he puts in parentheses, that is, in my flesh dwells no good thing. Now, if he hadn't put that parentheses in there, it wouldn't have been a true statement because in him dwelt God and everything that God is and everything that God had given him, and it was all good. But see, he specified, he says, in my flesh, in other words, my physical carnal self, not my born-again self, but in my flesh there's no good thing. Well, it's okay if a Christian acknowledges and understands that without Christ we are nothing. But in Christ we can do all things. In Christ there are good things. 
And we have to be focused on who we are in Christ. And this is where Satan's warfare is aimed. It is aimed against you understanding and acknowledging who you are and what you have in Christ. It is lies. It's deception. Satan doesn't have any more power to make you fail in any area of your life than he had to make Adam and Eve fail. Instead, he has to deceive us. Now stop and think about this. If you were the devil, and if you were trying to deceive perfect people, Adam and Eve, who had never sinned, who had never had any kind of problems, who were living in paradise where everything was perfect. The temperature was just right. All of their food was provided. There were no problems in the world. There was no bad news on every day. How, how could he tempt them? He couldn't tempt them with money. There wasn't such a thing as money. Every need was supplied. Everything was abundant. He couldn't tempt them with adultery. There was no one else to commit adultery with. He couldn't tempt them with bitterness and hurt and pain over past experiences and living in the past and being depressed or discouraged. There was none of those things. How do you tempt perfect people? You can't tempt them with money. You can't tempt them with sex. You can't tempt them with power, with pride, with arrogance, with glory, fame. There was none of those things. How do you tempt people who live in a situation like that? Well, you know, that's really a difficult thing. And what he chose to do was come and say, well, as good as it is, there's more. And you don't have it all. The truth is, they did have it all. And he got them to speculating about what might be, what could be. And he caused perfect people, perfect people living in perfection with zero problems, which most people today would give anything to live in that situation. These perfect people threw it all away because a talking snake convinced them that they didn't have enough. If you could con convince perfect people who had zero physical problems, zero reason to ever question and doubt the goodness of God, if you could convince people living in paradise, in perfection, that they didn't have it all, then I can guarantee you that you can convince people living in a fallen world who can open their eyes and look in any direction and see pain and tragedy and lack and need, then you can convince those people that they don't have it all. But the truth is that those of you who've been born again do have everything. You are complete in Christ Jesus. Everything has been given unto you, and you are not fighting against some demonic power who has superior power, superior authority that you have to stand and fight against. But instead, all you're doing is fighting against his lies, his deceptions, the same lies and deceptions that he used on Adam and Eve. Now, I could explain this for a long, long time. As a matter of fact, I have a six-tape album entitled Spiritual Authority that'll go into the very things I'm beginning to say right here and go into it in much greater detail. But here in Ephesians chapter 6, notice he's talking about a warfare. Yes, we are in a war, but what's the war about? The warfare isn't in heavenly places way out there somewhere, but instead it's right between your ears. The battle against the devil is waged in your thoughts. And this is the reason that God's word is essential. That's the reason that John chapter 8 says, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Because truth is the antidote for deception. And Satan's only power is deception. 
He has lied to us and told us that he's powerful and we have misrepresented things. And we actually have caused many people to submit to Satan because they think, after all, you know, look how powerful he is. Satan has zero power. His only power is lies and deception. If we know the truth, the truth will set us free. Let me share another passage of Scripture with you on spiritual warfare. I've already used a couple here out of Second Corinthians chapter 2 talking about, you know, we aren't ignorant of his devices. That shows that the... the uh, Antidote, the weapon against Satan, is actually uh, truth. Truth is what sets you free. John chapter 8, we used Ephesians chapter 6 about standing against the wiles of the devil. Listen to this passage of Scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and in verse 3. He says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. Here he is talking about a warfare, a spiritual warfare. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing uh, into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Now here again is another passage on warfare. Notice that it's talking about our warfare, but then in verse 4 it says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God, to the pulling down of strongholds, verse 5, casting down imaginations, that is a process of your mind, your imagination, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. These verses are saying that our warfares, our warfare, our weapons of our warfare are against thoughts, imaginations, knowledge that comes against the Word of God. Once again, there is spiritual warfare. I agree with that 100%. But the warfare is against Satan's lies and deception. He has no power. Most Christians believe that Satan does have a huge power, a tremendous power, much greater power and authority than physical human beings. That is not true. Satan is a defeated foe. He's been beaten. But he goes about, as it says over in 1 Peter chapter 5, it says he goes about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He is not a true lion. He's just as a roaring lion. Satan tries to intimidate the body of Christ, but the truth is he has had his teeth pulled. All he could do is gum you. He can't do anything. Satan is powerless. Satan does not have the ability to steal anything from you unless you believe his lie, his deception. And if you empower him and give him more power and authority than he's worth, then he uses your power against you. He uses your fear, your unbelief, your terror to oppress and destroy you. And so, yes, Satan is a factor. And I believe that there are people that are literally having Satan eat their lunch and pop the bag, but it's not because he is greater in authority and power. It's because he deceives them and they yield to him through fear and they actually empower the devil by doing that. Let me give you some personal examples on this. When I first got really turned on to the Lord, March the 23rd, 1968, I immediately became aware of the spiritual world much more than what I had been. I not only realized that God was alive and well, but I realized that there was a lot of things going on in this world that were caused by demons. 
Now, I was raised in a denomination that believed all of the demons were over in Africa. And they didn't believe that, you know, there were such things as demons. It was a non-issue. It wasn't even practical to talk about it. But as I got to reading the Word, it just jumped out at me, and the Holy Spirit showed me that there was a lot of problems, especially sicknesses and emotional problems that were demonic in origin. And I started praying for people, and I started seeing people delivered. We saw people come off drugs instantly with no withdrawal, who had been addicted to it before. We began to start seeing people delivered of things, and we began to start seeing great success. But we didn't know anything. All we did, we just knew that there was a warfare going on, but we didn't know we were ignorant of Satan's devices. We didn't know exactly how it worked. We were just fighting Satan. It was like, you know, uh, with our eyes closed, just flailing the air. And every once in a while, we had hit him, and praise God, we would see some victories. But there was a lot of bad things that came out of it, too. One of those things was I read a book. I won't mention the name of it, but many people would know this personally. Matter of fact, I mentioned it in one of my meetings, and a woman came up who went to the man's church for many years who wrote this book about demons and about how Christians should have to deal with demons. And she said that while she attended there, boy, the devil just destroyed her, destroyed her family, and everything I was saying here was true. She had witnessed it firsthand, and this man and his ministry and everything else were plagued by demonic powers. But anyway, this man wrote a book, and out of desperation trying to figure this out, we read it. Some of the things that they said was that, you know, when a person got delivered, they had to throw up in a bucket. There had to be a physical manifestation. You had to talk to the demons. You had to ask them their name. You had to find out the strong man. You had to cast them into a certain place. You couldn't just cast them out. You had to tell them where to go. You couldn't do it by yourself. There had to be two people present or the demons could overcome one. But you had to have at least two present. And there was just all of these things that there was really no scriptural precedent for. It was just this man's personal example. And I'm not saying that he's of the devil. I'm just saying that he made some mistakes. I made some mistakes. And part of those mistakes were based on this information we got. We used to have to prep the people. We would counsel them for three weeks or so and get them ready for deliverance. And there's people I know who still do that. There was a person here in my town of Colorado Springs who went for deliverance and they had to fill out about a five-page form, had to wait and make an appointment, and 45 days later they were supposed to go and get delivered of demons. That is absolutely foolish. Now that is not accurate. Jesus didn't have anybody fill out forms. He didn't take 45 days. Now I'm not condemning anybody because myself, I went through that. We started seeing demons cast out of people. The very first time, I guess, that I ever really saw this and knew for sure that it was demons, there was a woman who had come to our little Baptist church, and we weren't typical Baptists. We were radical Baptists. We believed in demon possession, and we believed in speaking in tongues and things like that. So we were radical uh, fringe Baptists. But anyway, she came, she got saved, and she really was converted, but she had some problems. And she was uh, lesbian, and there had just been all kinds of problems. And so she was working through these. She had really been saved, but she was still working through these problems. And one day, she just freaked out, flipped out at work. She didn't know her name. She didn't know who she was. She didn't know where she was coming from. She didn't even know what she was doing in that building. She didn't know anything. 
I mean, she just literally lost her mind. And somebody walked up to her and called her name and says, I'll meet you after work and, uh, you know, you ride home with me. And so she knew from what that person said what her name was. She followed that woman home. She got out and she looked in her purse and found some keys and it opened up her door. And that's where we found her. She didn't know anything. She was just totally out of it. And we believed that this was totally demonic. If we would have taken her to some government agency, they would have put her in a mental ward, doped her up, and she probably never would have been the same. So we knew that the answer was spiritual instead of physical. So what we did was take her and lock her in a room. We didn't know anything except that it was the devil. And we just started praying and singing songs. This little woman, I mean, she wasn't little, but she was a woman, and she was violent. And I remember one time that we were holding her down, and she, with one arm, took two of us and threw us over her head up against a wall. Supernatural strength, just like in the Bible with Legion. And we began to start seeing demonic manifestations. Again, we didn't know a lot, and we didn't know exactly how to do this. And so we just locked her in there took shifts with her, and I mean over seven days we saw all kinds of demons come out of this woman just by our persistence and our faith and our our refusing to give up. Because of that, fame got around. People started coming to us. We started seeing people delivered, and, and but we got into some of these weird things. Again, empowering the devil, giving him much more credit than what was due. And I remember that there was this one homosexual that we had been dealing with for weeks, getting him ready to get delivered. And we had had him coming and meeting with us on a weekly basis. Anyway, he came to our church. This was, again, remember, a Baptist church. He came on a Wednesday night, and he wanted us to cast these demons out of him. Well, the guy, the associate pastor of the church, who he and I both were the ones that were casting these demons out of people, he was gone to a conference. And so I was there by myself. And so they came and got me, and I saw this guy. He had brought with him another homosexual who needed to be delivered. And he came, and he says, I'm ready to get delivered tonight. And I said, you can't do it. He says, why not? And I said, because it's just me by myself. This other guy isn't with me. And he says, no, I'm not leaving this place with these demons. And I said, I'm not casting them out. And he says, you better do something because I'm not leaving with them. And so I didn't know what to do. I got Jamie. At that time, she wasn't my wife, but we were prayer partners, and Jamie had never seen demons cast out. This is before I think she received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but she went back there with me, and we were in a room that had windows on two sides. It had chairs stacked up on the side, maybe 10, you know, stacked on top of one another, and uh, I started talking to this guy, and I said, I'm not doing this, and he says, you better plead the blood. See, that's another thing. We were taught that you have to plead the blood to keep the demons from coming out of that person and entering into you or into someone else, which, again, is not accurate. And um, anyway, I didn't know what to do. And so I just started praying. And I said, Father, I don't know what to do. And while I did, this guy fell on the ground, started barking like a dog and writhing like a snake and throwing chairs up against these windows. The other demon-possessed guy who was a homosexual, he climbed up on top of a stack of about 10 chairs. Jamie was over there just praying as fast and furious as she could. I didn't know what to do. So I started asking these demons their name. What's your name? In the name of Jesus, tell me your name. And uh, 
you know, a demon would name itself. I won't go into all of the details, but we had elaborate systems for talking to him. There was all kinds of manifestations and things. We, we've seen so many things happen. And um, anyway, I just felt like I was being made a fool of because I was having all these demons manifest and name themselves, and I wasn't sure one left before another one got to manifesting. And I just felt like I was being made an absolute fool of. I didn't know what to do, and out of desperation, I just prayed, Oh, God, help me. And the Lord just reminded me of a scripture where Jesus commanded the evil spirits to shut up and come out. And I thought, well, that would be good. And so I just said, in the name of Jesus, I command all of you to shut up and come out of this man. And boom, instantly he stopped. He fell on the ground. He looked like he was dead. And I went over and kind of rolled him over. And he was just worshiping God and saying, thank you, Jesus, I'm free. They're gone. And he was totally set free. We suspect there's over 10 demons that left, left this guy. And I thought, man, that was super simple compared to what we used to do, talking to them, asking them their name and doing all this stuff. And I just resolved right then. I said, you know what? I have been giving the devil too much place. I've been asking him his name and thinking I have to go through all these things. There has to be two people present. You have to plead the blood. You have to do all. And I, it wasn't any of that stuff. I just spoke and boom, they were gone. I began to study the word and find out that that's the way that Jesus did it. And I began to get a lot bolder. During that same period of time, uh, there was so much demonic stuff going on. People who were demon-possessed coming to us that our focus was on the devil. We were constantly talking about the devil. I actually found myself one time. I would spend anywhere from two to three or four hours a day in prayer. And I found myself one time spending more time talking to the devil in quote-unquote prayer than I did God. And, you know, that bothered me. I said, God, I'm spending more time addressing the devil when I pray than I do you. And I knew something was wrong with that. There's a lot of people who are into this weird type of spiritual warfare that their whole prayer life is all about binding the devil and rebuking it. And they call it prayer, but they're actually talking and addressing the devil. Something is wrong with that. I began to recognize this. Also, during that same period of time, I was trying to open up an Arlington Christian Center in Arlington, Texas. We rented a building which had been a fraternity house. We painted it. We're cleaning it out. And I was doing an all-night prayer thing up there at that place uh, with my church. I was there by myself, but I was praying in this building. And as I did, I had some demonic manifestations. I mean, something in that room began to choke me. There was nothing that you could see. But I was physically being choked, beaten. I was having, I was physically attacked by demons. Man, I ran out of that building. I locked the door behind me. I got in my car, backed out of the driveway, and I was just getting ready to peel rubber and take out of there. And the Lord spoke to me. He says, where are you going? I said, God, I'm getting out of here. There's demons in that building. And he said, in Ephesians chapter 6, all of the armor that you use against the devil is for the front. There is no armor for the back. And I, I knew what that meant that you can't turn your back on the devil. You have to face him. And I said, Lord, what do you mean? You wouldn't want me to go back into that house. And I didn't hear anything else. You know, the Lord's not going to argue with you. He'll just make a statement and then leave you to decide what you're going to do with it. 
And I sat out in that street for, I mean, this was like 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, and I sat out there in that car for a while. Finally, I pulled into the driveway, turned the engine off, went in, locked myself in that house, and I fought those demonic powers from about 3 o'clock in the morning until 6 or so, and by the time I did, it was all cleared out and it was gone. But I had that demonic manifestation I had a number of dreams where Satan would attack me. I'd wake up and think it's only a dream, go into the restroom and find myself bleeding from physical attacks. I mean, there was demonic manifestations. But you know why that was? Well, some people would say it's because the devil is powerful and you were, you were messing with his territory. No, you know what it was? It was because I was spending so much time with the devil and rebuking the devil and and focusing on it and learning all of these things about the devil, that I actually had given the devil too much importance in my life. I was too focused on him. And the Lord showed this to me, and I realized that I had glorified the devil and given him more power than he was worth. And I saw that. I repented of it. I rebuked it. And from that time on, I said, you know, the best defense is a good offense. And I'm going to be so bold praising God, worshiping God, focusing on God, that I believe that by being focused on God, it's going to destroy Satan's inroad into my life. And it's now been 30-something years, and I have never had another demonic manifestation. Now, I've had demons manifest around me and people, and I've cast a lot of demons out of people. I've got some of that on tape. You can hear uh, uh, non-human screams and voices coming out of people. But personally, I have never had to fight physically a demon. I have never had those things happen. The only reason they happened then was because I empowered the devil to do that by my fear, by my undue emphasis that I was placing on him. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, that this is happening over and over and over in the body of Christ today. We have given the devil way too much credit. Satan is a factor he is going about seeking whom he may devour, but the only reason he can do anything against any person is because they empower him through their fear. And a lot of what is being taught, spiritual warfare today, is ascribing to the devil more power, more authority than he really has. He has zero power, zero authority. His only power is deception. And by spiritual warfare conferences, ascribing to the devil this great power and talking about principalities that rule over places and demons that have to be bound before anything can happen and stuff, they are presenting things contrary to what the Word of God presents. And it's actually causing many people to yield to the power of the devil. Let me show you another passage of Scripture in Colossians chapter 2. And this is just powerful. This is really great. Colossians chapter 2, in verse 13, he says, And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of, his, out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Man, that is powerful. Especially verse 15, it says, And having spoiled principalities and powers. The word spoil here is is used in the sense, uh, not like when you say that fruit spoils, meat spoils, where it turns rotten. 
but rather it's talking about in the venue of conquest. You go out and conquer your enemy and then you take the spoils. You spoil them. You take from them everything that is of value. Satan has been spoiled. Principalities and powers have been spoiled. They were stripped of all authority, all power. Satan was the God of this world who had power and authority. Jesus stripped him of that. He has been spoiled. He doesn't have any power and authority. His only weapon is deception. And then if you yield to him, he uses your power, your authority to overcome you. So it says in verse 15 that he spoiled principalities and powers and made a show of them openly. This word show... If you study it in the Greek, it's literally the same word that we get exhibition from or exhibit. In other words, God exhibited, made an exhibition out of Satan. I liken this to like when I used to be in um, high school and we had biology class. You had to go catch crickets and bugs and butterflies and insects and things, and you would mount them, you would kill them and mount them on a piece of paper and then right underneath what their name is. And so here they were impaled with this pen, you know, through them, holding them to this poster board or something, and that's an exhibit. And that's the way I see the devil. He has been impaled on the cross through, you know, the spikes that hung Jesus on the cross. He's now nailed to the cross. He's an exhibit, stripped. He has nothing. He has been made a show of, an exhibition. And then the last phrase in that verse It says that he triumphed over them in it. If you look this word up, the Greek phrase, or the Greek word that was translated by this phrase, triumphing over them, is it's a word that literally was referring to a triumphant procession. It's talking about to just literally display, uh, and it is referring to a custom that the Romans had, that when they went out and fought an enemy, Uh, They would go out, and if they conquered their enemy, they would bring them back and have a parade. Now, if they didn't conquer the enemy, then they wouldn't have this parade. And the problem here was that all of the Roman citizens who had been terrorized by this foreign power, this opposition force, the enemy, uh, if they didn't have a parade, if the enemy wasn't conquered, well, then there was still fear in their life. There was still anxiety. There was still worry and care about, is he going to come back? Is he going to conquer? They may have won a battle, but if they didn't conquer the king, the opposing general, and have this parade, well, then maybe he could marshal his forces again. There was reason for doubt and questions and worry. But when they conquered the enemy, they would take this either general or the king the opposing force, and they'd either kill him and bring his head and his body so that everybody could see, or what they preferred was to literally capture him alive. They would strip him totally naked so that he wouldn't have any, you know, uh, uh, garments on him that would make him look kingly important. He wouldn't have any armor on that would make him look, uh, you know, as as if he was strong. But instead, they would see him absolutely stripped naked, They would tie him to a chariot or to a horse and either have him walk or drag him through the streets. And they would also cut off uh, both thumbs and both big toes so that he could never again hold a sword, that he could never again stand in battle. And they would parade him through the streets 
and they would show all of the Romans that your enemy is conquered. They would do this. They preferred to do it that way because that way it took care of all worry, all fear, all questions about whether this guy was ever going to be able to mount a campaign or not. They had a parade and literally displayed him in a way that the the citizens would mock him, spit on him, beat him, do things like this, and it would totally take away their fear of this king or of this general. And that was the purpose of the parade. And, you know, basically this is what this is saying, is that Jesus did the same thing to the devil. Through these scriptures that we've already talked about, Jesus just absolutely defeated the devil at every turn. It says over in Hebrews chapter 2 that he destroyed him who had the power of death, that is the devil, so that he could deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Now, How clear can you make it? He destroyed him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and delivered them who through fear of death. See, Satan didn't have the power. It was the fear of death. It's the wiles of the devil. It's the deception that he comes against people with. And he delivered us from this. There has been a parade. There is this triumphant procession where Satan has been paraded through the scriptures and shown to be an absolute zero with the rim knocked off. He's a nothing. But the problem is the body of Christ missed the parade. As a whole, especially spiritual warfare people, they are getting it right that yes, there is a warfare. And yes, Satan is alive. And yes, Satan is a factor. But where they're missing it is they're saying he's a factor because he has great power and great authority. No, he doesn't. He has great ability to deceive and lie, and we have to stand against the wiles of the devil. We need to know the truth. We need to be focused on God and not focused on demons. And yes, there's a battle, but I tell you, most as a whole, the spiritual warfare movement has glorified the devil, has given them, they've missed the parade. They are ascribing to the devil more power than he deserves. Some examples of what I'm talking about. In the spiritual warfare thing, there is a great movement that before you can go into an area and be effective preaching the gospel, you have to have what they call, uh, you know, different terminologies have been used, but the ones I'm familiar with are you have to have spiritual mapping, which means you have to know what the background of that area is. You have to know what demonic things have gone on in the past. You have to research it. You have to understand what the strongholds are through this. And then you have to send in intercessors. And these intercessors spend months, years, decades praying, rebuking, binding spiritual powers so that the Word of God can have its impact. Let me just say this as bluntly as I possibly can. There is zero, zero precedent for that in the Word of God. You cannot find that anywhere in God's Word. That is absolutely wrong. Now, am I saying that there aren't demonic powers? No, that's not what I'm saying. I believe that there are demonic powers. And I believe that there is a hierarchy of demons, that there are spiritual wickedness. There are demons assigned to places, to areas. And I believe that those things exist. But you know what? Paul never sent anybody in to pray and to bind and prepare the place so that the Word of God could go forth. No, the Word of God, the truth, is what sets man free. John chapter 8. And it is 
an, a wrong application for us to preach that the reason there isn't more people being born again and set free is because we haven't prayed enough and we haven't done spiritual warfare. Jesus never appointed people to go into the cities before him and pray. Now, he did send his disciples into the cities to promote, to let the people know he was coming so that the crowds would be there. He sent them forth to do miracles and to draw people. Paul never sent people forth. Peter never did those things. There is zero scriptural precedent for this. The whole spiritual warfare movement the way that it is glorifying that, you know, intercessors have to stand here and bind all of these demonic powers and intercede. It is absolutely wrong. Now, you will find things like over in Genesis, I believe it's chapter 18 or chapter 19, where Abraham interceded for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And you will find people interceding like that and asking God to have mercy. But that is different than uh, what is being done today. And even at that, I'm not going to go into all of this. I've got that on that tape set entitled Spiritual Authority. But there is a huge difference between what happened in the Old Testament and what happens in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, God had not yet made an atonement for our sins. Jesus had not gone to hell for us. He had not become our intercessor for us. And so it was appropriate to ask for mercy because mercy wasn't totally given. It was being shown, but it was like it was on credit. It wasn't an actual trans transaction. The atonement hadn't been made. But this side of the cross, there is a huge difference between the way we relate to God today. God is now pouring out mercy and grace. As it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, He is not imputing man's sins unto them. And for us to think that there is still an angry God up there who is ready to judge this nation, and unless we repent, unless the intercessors beg and plead with God to stay your wrath and repent of the evil that you've done or that you're thinking of doing, that is absolutely wrong. Jesus has already atoned for us. He is the intercessor to end all of that type of intercession. Now, there is a godly type of intercession today, but it's just simply saying, Father, I know that you're a good God, that you love us. You would have spared Sodom and Gomorrah if there would have only been 10 righteous. There's more than 10 righteous in this country. Thank you that you don't want to judge us. All of these prophecies of doom and unless we do this and that, God is going to destroy us. That is not God. Don't misunderstand me. There are consequences. When people are God-haters and quit seeking God, they become mean and selfish and crime escalates and problems and terrorist attacks and terrible things happen. But that's just sowing and reaping. That's different than God judging. God is not bringing his judgment on people in this day and age. There's coming a time when he will, and he will be just in doing it. But during the church age, he is releasing mercy. And the New Testament intercessor is not begging God to turn from his wrath, as Moses did in Exodus chapter 32, because God has already turned from his wrath when Jesus made an atonement for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. He has now turned from his wrath, and God is extending mercy and grace unto people. And for a New Testament intercessor to stand there, and, and tell God to repent, as Moses did, is wrong. Now, Moses wasn't wrong in doing it because there was a dispensation of when God was pouring out his wrath. But we are living in a day and age where he says that God was in Christ, not imputing man's sins unto them, but reconciling them unto himself. 
and for a New Testament intercessor to tell God to repent, to tell God to move, oh God, please pour out your power. All of those kind of things are denying the intercession and the atonement of the Lord Jesus. You need to understand that there is a difference between the way intercession was done in the Old Testament and the way it's done in the New Testament. And much of what is being taught today in spiritual warfare is absolutely Old Testament mentality. It is anti-Christ. It is denying the fact that Jesus destroyed him who had the power of the devil. It is glorifying the devil. Basically, it's just people who missed the parade. The way I believe that we should do spiritual warfare on a personal level, what you do is you resist the lies and the deception of the devil. And you do that primarily by knowing the truth. Again, John chapter 8, verse 32, And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And so it's the truth. Understanding the truth is the greatest antidote for deception. The strength, the power of deception is the fact that you don't know you're deceived. You don't know what the truth is. The moment you have a proper standard, the truth, well then, immediately, deception's lost its power. You know, if a person was terrorized thinking that somebody's going to come kill me, they've threatened to kill me, and then if you could somehow or another produce the corpse of the person who had threatened them, well then, that, that fear, that intimidation would be gone once they know the truth, once they know that they were no longer a problem. Well, see, that's the greatest antidote we have is the Word. On a personal level, I just take the Word of God. I meditate in it. I love God. I fellowship with God. I fellowship with God's people. And I stay positive, seeking God. And by doing so, that is a tremendous, tremendous weapon against the devil. Praise is a very powerful weapon against the devil. It literally drives him out. He can't abide praise. And so on a personal level, I spend very little time, very little time. I mean, I don't, I'm just pulling this off the top of my head, but maybe once a month, maybe once every couple of months, I rebuke and bind the devil over something. And the only reason I do it then is not because he has power that is just coming against me. It's just because the warfare in my mind, in my thoughts has become so intense that I just verbalize it and I speak it out and say, I rebuke these thoughts. Satan, you have zero right over me. And I'll rebuke and say those things out loud. But most of the time, I don't even have to say it out loud. I just counter it by the truth. Now, that could change if you are in a situation where you have been dominated by the devil for a long time. If you're demon-possessed and are trying to come out of it, you might have to emphasize and rebuke and speak to things more. But once you're free, it's fairly easy to keep that freedom by just staying in the truth. And anytime you recognize something that has risen up, that has caused you problems because you believed a lie, then you just speak it out and rebuke it, and it's done. That's on a personal level. When it comes to dealing with other people, well, then I rebuke demons when they come to me. But let me say this, that I used to just, if I saw a demon uh, uh, afflicting a person, and I'm not even going to get into this thing. On this six-tape album, I discussed this. I'm not going to do it here about the different degrees of demon possession, whether you're possessed, oppressed, depressed. The Bible just simply uses the word demonized in the original Greek. It doesn't make distinctions between different degrees. But when I see a person who is demonized, who has demonic problems, used to, I would just want to go cast those things out. I've come to realize now that if I take authority over them and cast them out just on my faith, well, then those things are going to come back on that person 
And in some ways, I'm doing them a disservice because Jesus talked about that if you cast the demon out, he wants to come back with seven spirits worse than himself. And the last state is worse than the first. I've come to realize that the best way to get a person delivered is to tell them the truth, to tell them about how Jesus has promised them victory, to instruct them, to teach them in the word of God. And if you'll do that, most of the time, if a person will just listen to me preach the truth to them and tell them the truth, the demons leave without me even having to rebuke them. I could give you hundreds of examples of that. I mean severe demon possession where people were totally non-functional. And yet when they, they sat and listened to the truth, they were delivered before I could even pray for them. There are some times, and I don't understand all of this, but I guess it's just the inroads that Satan has into a person's personality, into their mind or whatever. He's so ingrained in them that even when a person sees and embraces the truth, they still need someone else to pray and rebuke it. And so there are times I cast demons out of people, especially when I'm praying for sickness and depression and things like that, and I see people delivered. But I wouldn't do it without imparting to them some truth also, because they need to protect themselves, not only get the devil out, but keep him out. And then on a broad scale, when I'm not just dealing with an individual, but when I go into an area, I don't send intercessors in ahead of times. Again, I say that there isn't scriptural precedent for that. But I do do spiritual warfare. You know how I do it? I go in on radio, on television, through tapes, through books, through videos. I begin to start sharing the truth with people. And as they hear the truth, it opens up their heart and prepares them and makes them ready and more receptive to the gospel. And I go in and I preach the word. You know, in the 19th chapter of the book of Acts is an instance where Paul went to Ephesus and there was a lot of opposition towards him. Matter of fact, he was thinking about leaving the town and the Lord told him not to leave. I've got people here. And so he stayed there, I believe it was, three years in Ephesus. And he spoke boldly and had all kinds of spiritual opposition. There is not one single reference in Scripture where he got the the uh, believers together to pray and do spiritual warfare and go to rebuking the demonic powers over Ephesus. Specifically at that time, Diana of the Ephesians. They had a temple there that was one of the wonders of the world. And Diana was worshipped by people all throughout the all throughout Asia. And this was the center of her worship. Paul never told the believers to rebuke Diana of the Ephesians to do spiritual warfare. He never did it. He never organized the believers. You know how he did it? He preached the truth. He countered their wrong conceptions. He told the people the truth. It was through the preaching of the gospel that he broke the power of Diana of the Ephesians. And that's the way, that's the scriptural method. Now, yes, I believe that there was a demonic power reigning in Ephesus. But he didn't get intercessors and prayer warriors together to do it. He got people born again, told them the truth, had them go out and preach the truth, and the truth is what set men free. And I believe that Diana of the Ephesians was totally broken. Now let me make some applications here. In our day, I believe it was about 1999, the uh, leaders of the spiritual warfare prophetic movement and stuff went over to Ephesus. They believed that God told them that the whole, um, the biggest demonic power in our day and age was Diana of the Ephesians, and that she, this demonic power that was mentioned in the Bible, 
was actually what was controlling the Muslim world, the people in what's called the 1040 window, and that they needed to do warfare. And so they had people pray together, and they got people, I think it was around 20,000 people, to go over to Ephesus to this amphitheater that is a ruin from Paul's time, and they did spiritual warfare, and they destroyed Diana of the Ephesians. They didn't go over there and preach the gospel. They didn't go over there and win people to the Lord. Instead, what they did was just have people pray, and then they all assembled and had a praise service and things like this and supposedly dealt with Diana of the Ephesians. That is exactly opposite the uh, thing that Paul did, and I personally believe that Diana of the Ephesians isn't even a factor today. She was defeated 2,000 years ago by Paul. Nobody worships Diana of the Ephesians. And, of course, they'd come up and say, oh, well, today it's called Muslim or, uh, you know, the Islamic faith. But that's the same spirit. Well, that's all subjective. That's what they say. That's what they felt. That's what their impressions are. But there aren't any ways to clarify that and to verify it. I don't believe it's true. Paul defeated Diana of the Ephesians, whether you call call it Islam or whatever, He defeated all that stuff 2,000 years ago, not by prayer, not by intercession, but by preaching the truth. And those demonic powers were broken. Now, am I saying that I don't believe that there are demonic powers? No, I believe that they are there. But they're there because people have empowered them and yielded to their lies. And the way we get that situation resolved is not by going and directly dealing with the demons and binding them and rebuking them. They don't have any power to do anything until people empower them by believing their lies. So the way to break those demonic powers are talk to the people, get the people out of the lies, out of the deceptions, and then the demonic powers are broken. Let's take, for example, uh, in San Francisco, you know, it's reported to be one of the headquarters of homosexuality. And so people from that deduce that there must be demonic powers over San Francisco, homosexual and lesbian spirits that are hovering over that place and keeping those people in bondage. I believe that there are demonic, uh, homosexual and lesbian spirits that dwell. And there's probably a concentration of them in San Francisco greater than there are in other places. I would agree with that. So how do you deal with it? Well, the way some people are dealing with it is through intercession and binding, and they send people out just to walk and pray and do things. That is not the scriptural model. Those demonic powers, they are a non-factor except for the fact that people have yielded and empowered them. You can't bind those demonic powers and command them to depart. See, some people think that if you just get rid of the demonic powers, then the people will be free to respond to the gospel. No, that's not the way that it works. Those demonic powers are there. It's not that there were certain demons over San Francisco and they drew all of the homosexuals there. You know what it was? There was somebody, I don't know all of the history of this, but there was somebody in the San Francisco area who probably was homosexual or leaned towards homosexuality, they got into government, they passed laws, they gave special welfare benefits, special legal benefits. Uh, they, They provided a haven that made it attractive to homosexuals. And because of that, homosexuals from all over the nation and around the world came to San Francisco and brought their demonic powers with them. 
It wasn't the demonic power centered there that drew homosexuals. No, it was the homosexuals that were drawn there by all of these benefits given unto them that brought the, all of these demonic powers with them. And if you want to get rid of the demonic powers, you don't go into the heavenlies and do battle directly with them. What you do is preach the truth to these people. And if they hear the truth and learn that God made them Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, then they'll get set free and they can be free. And when they hear the truth, they resist those devils. Those demonic powers will be broken up and the entire climate over San Francisco will change. And you could go on and on and on and make applications of that. I've got friends who believe that uh, there are atrocities done to the American Indians that until we apologize, until we go back and do spiritual warfare and deal with these demonic spirits from back in the 16, 17, 1800s, that you can't see revival, etc., etc., etc. That, again, contradicts Scripture. Now, some people might be able to quote Old Testament scriptures that say, well, now, wait a minute, God said he would judge iniquity unto the tenth generation and stuff. Again, that was Old Testament. In the book of Ezekiel, it says that it, there used to be a proverb that says the fathers have eaten sour grapes and their teeth have been set on edge and their children's teeth are set on edge. But that proverb won't be used anymore when it prophesies about the New Testament. It says, but every man will answer for his own sin. And it won't happen anymore that the children will be judged with the father's sins. That's this covenant that we live under. Yes, there were atrocities done to the American Indians. I don't doubt that. And if I, my wife is an Indian, but you know what? She's not carrying around bitterness and hurt and harboring it. But if I meant an Indian who was hurt, and if he was mad at me because of what my great-great-great-grandfather did to his people, well, I'd say I'm sorry. It was wrong. It shouldn't have happened. You know, I'm not going to profess that there weren't things done wrong, but you know what? That is not what is holding me in bondage, and it's not what's holding that man in bondage. It's the fact that he doesn't know the truth, that he has been forgiven, and that he can stand on his own. He is not a product of what happened 500 years ago. Now, those things have been influences on him, but it is absolutely his choice to choose life or death. And if he could get hold of that truth, he could be set free. But I'm not going to sit there and empower these demons and say that until we do these things and go through all this atonement that nothing can happen. That's giving Satan power that he doesn't have. There have actually been people who have retraced the, the route of the Crusades through Europe back in the 1100s. And they've gone and done... Uh, a penance and apologize to people believing that until they reconcile and until they take these descendants of the people who were hurt back in 1100 that Europe is going to stay in spiritual darkness. Wrong. You know what's keeping Europe in spiritual darkness? The fact that they haven't heard the word. The fact that the word of God is banned in Europe over airwaves. Now they won't say that but it really is. I'm on television all across Europe on three satellites but you know what? They they uh, edit my teaching so much that it takes a lot of the power out of it. I even said one time something about spanking your kids, and they bleeped it out as if it was cussing. I can't mention that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. I can say the Bible says Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life and present it as an opinion, but I can't state it as a fact. They All across Europe, they have banned the preaching of the gospel in uh, France. They are, they are uh, uh, 
uh, passing laws. They've now made it illegal to try and evangelize. And if you lay hands on somebody and go to praying for them, you can be put in jail for practicing medicine without a license. All of their things are against the gospel. And that's the reason that Europe is staying in the state that it's in is because they are not open to the gospel. It's not because of demonic powers. Now, demonic powers are a part of it. They're inspiring people to take those steps and stuff, but you can't solve the problem by just doing spiritual warfare and binding demons. What you got to do is get the word into those people. And I'm doing everything that I can. We put out hundreds, thousands of tapes. We are on television and radio and doing everything we know to do. We support people in Europe who are bold in preaching the gospel. And I believe that that should be the approach of the church. I actually believe that the way spiritual warfare has been presented today to where it's encouraging people not to preach the gospel, not to tell the truth, but just to pray, I believe that that's actually a ploy of the devil. And some people will take great offense at that and say, how could it be the devil that wants you to pray? Well, the devil inspired the scribes and the Pharisees and the hypocrites to sound trumpets and to pray on the street corners to do all of these religious things. That religion has always been demonic. I'm not talking about true Christianity, but I'm just talking about religious observance. Religion is one of Satan's biggest strongholds. If you think that Satan would never encourage people to just pray, well, then you're just sadly mistaken. You don't know your church history. I believe that Satan loves to get people to go through spiritual calisthenics and do all of these things that look impressive and yet have no power to it. The The focus of Christians should be on preaching the gospel, getting the truth out. And yet there are groups that send people by the millions around the world and tell them not to preach the gospel. Don't witness to anybody. Your job is just walk and pray and do spiritual warfare. And they are spending big, big bucks, millions, billions of dollars doing that. That is wrong, wrong, wrong. Their heart may be right. They may have a good desire. It may do the individual some good. It might make them pray more after they're there and after they see what's going on. It might put a greater burden on their heart. There may be some good come out of it. But if you were to take that same amount of money, the billions of dollars, and put it into preaching the gospel and distributing tracts and getting the word out and the truth out, you would see infinitely more response. Actually, it's not a matter of either preaching or praying. It should be done in combination. But but prayer, intercession, is like water to a seed. If the seed is planted in the ground, then it needs to be watered and fertilized. But you can water and fertilize barren ground and nothing will come of it. You have to plant the seed. That People are born again by the incorruptible seed of the Word of God. And if people go forth. You can do like Paul says, pray for me that utterance may be given unto me, that I may speak the word with all boldness. He didn't pray, pray that the people's ears will be open to hear. Pray that the demonic powers will leave. Pray that Diana of the Ephesians will cease to be a factor. He never encouraged people to do that. When he asked people to pray for him, he asked people to pray that he would speak with revelation, with authority, with power, that miracles would be done, those kind of things. Yes, prayer, intercession is an important part of the gospel, but not the way it's being done today. It's been substituted for the preaching of the gospel. And that is absolutely wrong. That is not it. Paul 
literally destroyed Diana of the Ephesians. So much so that in Acts chapter 19, you can find where Demetrius and some of the silversmiths came together because they were just about out of work. People quit buying their little pagan statues. And they said, not only our craft, but this entire temple is in danger of being destroyed. And it was. Diana of the Ephesians hasn't even been a factor for 2,000 years until the spiritual warfare intercessors raised her up and gave her power that she didn't have. That is not the way it's supposed to be done. I tell you again, I refer you to this set I've got on spiritual authority, six tape album, because there's just so many things that I've touched on here that I haven't had time to explain because I wanted to get an overall picture across, not just individual things. And I've probably raised as many questions as I've answered. But I'm telling you, Satan is a factor. And yes, there is God has already done everything and has given us everything in the spiritual world. But we are fighting a war. But how is that war fought? Is it in the heavenlies? Do we have to do like some of these spiritual warfare people where they rent planes so they can get up and do battle with spiritual wickedness in high places? Do we have to go up to the top of buildings? Do we have to send people around the world and send them to foreign countries so that they can do battle over there? You know, if those demonic powers were really the force that people claim that they are, you don't have to rent a plane and get up close to them. It's not like our prayers only work within a 100-yard radius, that you have to send people to foreign countries to get that accomplished. That's not so. If it was true, you could stand right here and just bind them from where you are. Prayer is that powerful. But no, you don't have to do that. That's not what Paul did. You know what you do? You preach the gospel. You tell people the truth. You go on radio and television. You train people. You send people out. You have churches started everywhere. You preach the gospel. The emphasis is on the word of God. And I tell you, the emphasis hasn't been on the word of God with most spiritual warfare people. They get into all kinds of weirdness. There are, there are accounts that I've heard of people in public meetings, literally women laying on top of men in a birthing position and going through the motions of giving birth, and they say that they're travailing and doing spiritual warfare. That is just lewd. That is totally ungodly. God never led anybody to do that kind of stuff. There is weirdness, weirdness, weirdness being done in the spiritual warfare intercession movement today. Am I against spiritual warfare? No. Am I against intercession? No. I'm just against the weirdness that is being called that stuff today. And I tell you, there needs to be a re-examining by the body of Christ. Satan is a factor, but only because he's going about seeking whom he may devour, who he can deceive. And he is a factor because there are so many people deceived who are empowering him and promoting his doctrines. If we would preach the truth, if you would find out the truth then I tell you, Satan is reduced to nothing. But there is so much error, not only in the world, but in the body of Christ, that until we go home to be with the Lord, I think that you will have to be doing spiritual warfare. You will have to be fighting against the lies, the deception of the devil. You will have to be renewing your mind. I don't believe any of us have got it all figured out. Yes, there are things we are fighting, and yes, spiritual warfare is real. But it is not because Satan has all this power. It's because he's deceived so many people. And the antidote is not intercession and binding demonic powers and getting millions of people to pray. But instead, the answer 
is in getting the truth out to people and getting people set free. I've mentioned this briefly. I haven't got time on the rest of this tape to go into great explanation, but the same thing holds true here of revival. I am for revival. I want to see the effects of revival in America and around the world. We need a revival, but how do you go about getting it? The intercessors are saying what we've got to do is pray harder and get more people, a million people, two million, five million people to pray and fast and do this. And they look at it as if God is the one who is responsible for just giving revival, that it's him who's holding it back because he's not pleased. And so they're repenting and and doing restitution and all of these things to try and appease God. I'm telling you that God has already been appeased. Revival. People's lives being changed. People seeking God and being sensitive to God. The power that it takes to accomplish that was released through the Lord Jesus Christ. And it has been here on the earth forever. It's just people who aren't receiving it. We don't need to plead with God for revival. We need to believe what God has already done. Stand up. Go to raising people from the dead. Seeing miracles happen. And as we do this, then I guarantee you, you will see the effects of revival. You will have all the revival that you can handle. I'm for revival. I am. I believe for revival, but I believe it's going to come as people yield to God, not as we twist God's arm more through intercession and through spiritual warfare. I tell you, these truths right here are so contrary to the mainstream theology in the body of Christ today that I know many people may reject what I've said just because... It's kind of a lonely voice. It's not the only one, but there's few who are preaching this. But I challenge you to take the Word of God, to look at the atonement of Jesus, to follow the example of the book of Acts, and you can't find spiritual warfare done as it is being promoted today. Satan is a factor, but he is not the factor that he has been made to be by people who have missed the parade. I challenge you to take the word of God, find this triumphant procession, see Satan stripped, defeated. And once you see him that way, you will never again fear him. You'll never again cow to him and be intimidated by him the way that you have in the past. And you will be free to set other people free. I tell you, this will help you. Praise God. Father, I just believe that you give revelation and that the truth of your word has set people free. For anybody who has been destroyed, who has been under the thumb, they may still be under the thumb of the devil. I speak the truth, and I believe that the truth is going to set them free, that they will stand up and refuse to allow the devil to steal from them physically, financially, emotionally, in any area, that, Father, an anger will rise up on the inside not at you, but at the devil who has deceived them and lied and that they will resist him and that he will flee from them. Father, I thank you and I believe that you are doing that and we agree and receive miraculous deliverance in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.